Good morning. We're reading from Second Timothy, Second Timothy, sorry, chapter three, uh, verses fourteen to seventeen, as Mark said. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's word. Well, good morning, friends. Good to be with you again today. It's our second Sunday in our new series, all about the basics of the Christian life. And this morning, we're there in that passage that Rob read for us in 2 Timothy. Please have it open with you so you can follow along. Uh, Rob is actually my co-panelist for uh, the Q&A later, so do join us for that. So I wanted to say as we get underway, there's someone here we've been praying for for a while. Lockie over there, we've been praying for you in our home groups and elsewhere the last couple of weeks, and God certainly answered prayers if you're here with us today, so we're praying for your continued recovery, mate. And also very good news about the college this week. Um, So the Supreme Court has confirmed that the college is allowed to buy its buildings, and of course there is a bit of a deficit, which um, we'll see how we can help with that in due course to service the loans that they took out to enable them to do that. But uh, the principal, Gary Miller, uh, sent us an email this week as a church to say thank you for our contributions and our support and prayers over the last year as that's been underway. Right, well, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3, which was open here a second ago. There it is. How about we pray? Let's come to God's word. Father, we thank you so much that you've given us your word, the Bible, through which you speak. We pray now that you would speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Please speak until your church is built and the whole earth is filled with your glory. In Jesus' name and in his name we pray. Amen. Well, who doesn't love a good silver bullet solution? Of course, we talk about a silver bullet, we usually mean a simple, powerful, and almost perfect solution to a seemingly challenging or impossible problem. The phrase silver bullet, of course, comes from folklore and mythology, where it was believed that certain mythical beasts that were impervious to regular bullets, they could only be killed by a silver bullet. And of course, the Lone Ranger, a silver bullet was his preferred ammunition for dispensing justice. But we love a silver bullet solution. In some parts of the world, all sorts of magical rituals are used to solve difficult problems in relationships or in business or in health. And closer to home, for us maybe, social media and TV, they're chock full of people spruiking silver bullets for various uh, aspects of life. Buy these shares and you'll get unimaginable returns. Or use these phrases to guarantee dating success. Eat nothing but kale four times a day and lose weight, build muscle, and conquer the world. I'm sure you'd lose weight. We love these sorts of miracle solutions, though, because they, they appear so simple 
and they promise exceptional rewards, often out of proportion to their simplicity. But let's not forget the usual way we use the phrase, a silver bullet, is to say, there are no silver bullets. But we still love to believe they're out there. This morning, though, I'd like to point us to an actual silver bullet, something deceptively simple, but which promises and actually delivers exceptional rewards. And that silver bullet is nothing other than God's word, the Bible. So we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning, verse 14 through to 17. Please have that open with you in the order of service. You'll find a, a space where you can scribble notes if you'd like. I'm going to look at this under two big headings. And the first this morning is the Bible is special, verse 14 and 15. Now, we're about halfway through the New Testament, and to all appearances, 2 Timothy seems to be the Apostle Paul's final letter, his last written words. He's in prison. He's probably facing his execution very, very soon. And so from prison in Rome, he's writing to Timothy, a young church leader in the city of Ephesus, which is today in Turkey, to encourage him not to give up on the gospel. The good news that Jesus died and rose again to make enemies and sinners of God part of his family forever. And so in the face of persecution from outside the church and even from opposition inside the church, Paul's young mentee, Timothy, must not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, chapter 1, verse 8. He must follow the pattern of the sound words he has heard, 1, verse 13. He must guard the good deposit entrusted to him. 1 verse 14. He must rightly handle the word of truth. 2 verse 15. And what he's heard from Paul in the presence of many witnesses, he must entrust to faithful men who are able to teach others also. That's 2 verse 2. Timothy's got a lot of responsibility to do with the Bible. But why? Why should Timothy have to be so careful with a book? Well, that's what Paul goes on to explain in verse 14 of chapter 3 onwards, because he reminds Timothy just why the Bible is so valuable, why it is worth being confident in, why it's worth following, worth guarding, worth handling rightly, worth passing on, and it's because the Bible is special. There's no other book like the Bible. So we're going to look at Paul's instructions to Timothy here uh, and the two reasons why the Bible is special. The first reason is what the Bible is. The second reason is what the Bible does. So Paul writes to Timothy, reminding him that people outside and sadly even inside the church will oppose the gospel. And so verse 14 of chapter 3, he tells him, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, we should probably pause for a moment and ask, what are the sacred writings? There's a lot of things which might pass as sacred writings. Um, sacred, of course, usually means something of religious significance. Uh, so the Muslim Quran, uh, the Hindu Gita, the four-and-a-half-thousand-year-old Kesh Temple hymn carved on ta clay tablets in ancient Sumer, they all qualify basically as sacred writings. So what makes the Bible any different? Well, it's worth knowing the term Paul uses here, sacred writings, it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. 
But we know from other sources it usually refers to the books in the Jewish Old Testament, which is exactly the same as the ones we've got in our Bible today. But it's not just the Bible's heritage or its history or its longevity that makes it special. It's actually what Paul says at the beginning of verse 16 that makes the Bible an entirely different book from all the other sacred writings out there. So in verse 16, you'll see it, it says, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. Now, this statement about the Bible, it immediately sets it apart from every other holy book, scripture, or sacred text out there. Of course, lots of religions claim divine origin for their sacred writings. That divine origin ranges from claims that a person is sort of taken over by a spirit or a god who causes them to write things down, kind of in a trance. You find that in ancient Greek mythology and some uh, Hindu records. All, through, all the way through to claims that a spirit or a god dictates words to a human prophet who has to write them down exactly, a bit like the Islamic Quran written by the prophet Muhammad. The Bible certainly does contain examples of God telling his prophets exactly what to write in the Old Testament and the New, but the Bible is actually far more than that. Over and against both of those, the Bible is God-breathed. So consider the Bible. In the Bible, we have 66 books in two parts, the Old and New Testament, written by some 45 different authors, Authors with vastly different educational backgrounds, from royalty and academics through to tax collectors and fishermen, writing across a period of about 1,500 years, in three different languages, in places as diverse as the Middle East, Southern Europe, and even Southwest Asia, writing everything from historical records to poetry and songs to wisdom for daily life to philosophical reflections to prophetic proclamations to biography to personal correspondence all writing consciously and in their own personal and unique writing styles, and yet the Bible still has one clear message from its first page to its last. And Paul calls this unifying message back in verse 15, salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The only way that could possibly happen, a book like that has one single message from first to last, on virtually every page, is as if a powerful, unseen hand is guiding and supervising the whole thing. So yes, all Scripture is breathed out by God. There is no other book like the Bible. Of course, God doesn't actually have lungs like you and I. God doesn't need to breathe air. So when we talk about God breathing out the Bible, it's talking about God in the same way that Genesis 2 tells us a bit about God breathing out. We'll have a look what it says there. It's up on the screen for us. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. See, that God breathes and gives life. It's talking about God giving life from himself as the source of all life. And so when we say that the Bible is God-breathed, we mean it's, it's not some inanimate book like the Alexander McCall Smith novel on my bedside table. All of it has God's life in it. He brought it into existence in the first place. 
And he made it, as Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, a living word. We simply can't know the mechanics of how all this works, of how someone like King David or Luke could consciously and creatively write their own words, which at the same time has the life-giving breath of God in them, which makes them powerful to write to, to speak to us today. But Peter, in his second letter, does kind of pull back the curtain on this a little bit. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, he says this, that knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture can, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, it's, it's God's Holy Spirit which works in and through His Word, the Bible, to make it living and active today as ever. There is no other book like the Bible. Now, just to say, another implication of all this is that the Bible is the only place where God speaks with credibility and authority. The words of, of creeds and the historic confessions and catechisms and even churches and good Christian books and sermons can't claim this kind of authority and credibility, certainly being the God-breathed words of God. These things can only be measured by their faithfulness to the Bible. Same reason, inner voices, Christian experience, so-called modern-day prophets certainly can't either. They can't claim that level of trustworthiness and truth that comes from it being God's Word. Only the Bible has credibility and authority as God's God-breathed Word, which we can trust and obey. Now, there's a lot of excitement right now about uh, ChatGPT, an AI-based computer program that can produce written content. I wonder if any of you have played with it, uh, tried to see what it can come up with, maybe try to write a school assignment with it. No? Good? Okay. Its developers claim that this uh, computer program has read the entire collective works of humanity and leveraged state-of-the-art deep learning techniques and cre can creatively write new stories, poems, and academic papers and even have conversations like a human being. However, the one thing it will never be able to do is to create one single God-breathed word. The Bible will always stand apart from every other bit of content ever created in human history, because it is breathed out by God. So, the Bible's special because of what it is. But it's also special because of what it does. It's one thing to make an internal claim of divine inspiration, isn't it? I mean, virtually every religious text does that. I'm sure that ChatGPT will eventually be used to produce a sacred writing which will give rise to uh, the basis of a new religion, just kind of waiting for the clock to tick down on that one. So how can Paul be so sure of the Bible's own claims about itself being God's word? Or how can Timothy or, or even us be sure of those things? Well, in Timothy's case, he's got two places he can look for the Bible's, uh, to, to corroborate the Bible's evidence. Because we can be sure that the Bible is God, God's God, God uh, get this out of my mouth, God's God-breathed word we can be sure of that because of what it does. Not only because of what it is, but because of what it does. And you see, the Bible actually changes people. So Paul says Timothy's got two places he can look for, the, for evidence of the Bible's ability to change people. First of all, he can look at those who read and taught him the Bible in the first place. So verse 14, have a look there with me. 
Paul says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Now, of course, Paul means himself, but also Timothy's mother and his grandmother, who get a mention back in chapter 1. So just a page back in chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says that I'm reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Just as an aside there, never underestimate the ministry of mothers and grandmothers. The Word of God has had an undeniable effect on everyone in Timothy's family who has submitted themselves to it. Timothy's seen firsthand what God's breathed-out Word does. In the people who first taught him the Bible all through his life, he has seen their faith. So that's one place. The other place Timothy can look is at himself. And he can see the effect the Bible has had on him personally. For his whole life, he's learned the Bible, he's become familiar with the Bible, and he's been compelled by the Bible, which Paul says in, in verse 15 is, able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, obviously, this has happened in Timothy's case, and it will continue happening in Timothy's case as long as he continues submitting himself to the Bible and continuing in it. From what we know, Timothy never saw Jesus. He never heard Jesus teach. He never stood near the cross or saw the empty tomb. He never had a Damascus Road experience like Paul did, meeting the risen Jesus in all his glory. But Timothy had the Bible, which basically took him by the hand over the course of his life and led him to Jesus. It grew a wisdom in him so that he could See, the best choice he could ever make was to surrender himself to King Jesus and serve him with his whole life. The Bible recalibrated Timothy's life around Jesus. And that's because the God-breathed Bible is all about Jesus. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to his disciples and told them this, these are my words that I spoke while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem." Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. You see, the whole Bible is about Jesus. And by his spirit, it takes us to Jesus and recalibrates our life around Jesus. In God's word, we know Jesus, and in Jesus, we know God's word. The Bible is an utterly unique book, friends. It originates in the creator of the universe himself. It's given life by him to point us unmistakably to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our king and savior. And his Holy Spirit uses the Bible to change us for life in Jesus' kingdom forever. The Bible is special. Well, secondly, the Bible's not only special, it's also useful. This is what we'll look at particularly in verse 16 and 17. 
Some things are special, but they're not all that useful. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm sure we've all been on the receiving end of some utterly useless gifts, uh, where it was stretching it to even agree that the thought was what counted. That's why I love Father's Day. Now, you can never fail to get a useful gift on Father's Day, especially when it's bought from the Father's Day stall at school. <laughs> Last year, I got a pen. But this wasn't just an ordinary pen. This pen had a screwdriver, had a spirit level, it had a ruler, it even had a little stand for holding up your phone so you could watch YouTube. And on the side, it said, Awesome Dad. Now, that's a useful gift. Of course, God has given us his Bible as an incredibly special but also an incredibly useful gift. It might not tighten screws or help you level picture frames, or, but it does something even better. So have a look with me at verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, Paul's already pointed out that the Bible is useful to instruct you or make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There's a good use there. But it's also worth noticing here that because the Bible comes from God, it's also useful for knowing God. It's an incredible gift that the Lord of the universe has revealed his character and his thoughts and his plans and his goals in words a human being can understand. It's the only way we can actually know God. Because we're human beings, we, we can't possibly begin to understand him. Our field of view is not wide enough. And because we're sinful, we can't see him clearly anyway. So kindly and generously, God gives us his word written down in human language so we can know him. So now Paul, in verse 16, goes on to mention four particular uses of the Bible. First, there's teaching. Things, you know, we can learn new things from the Bible. Second, there's reproof or rebuke. The Bible shows us where we've gone wrong. Thirdly, there's correction. The Bible shows us how to get back on track. And fourthly, there's training in righteousness. It gives us a pattern to live by so we grow in the life God wants us to live in Christ, preparing us for heaven. Now, I'm sure you can see that there is some overlap between these different uses. Different Bible suge teachers suggest different ways of putting them together. For example, uh, English Bible teacher John Stott suggested that the prophet of Scripture relates to both creed and conduct. So teaching and reproving are about what we believe, and correcting and training are about how we live. I think that's a, about as good an explanation as any. I don't believe Paul's point is for us to agonize over the exact meaning of these words as though they're technical terms. The, the point is obvious. It's to show how comprehensively useful the Bible is for every aspect of our lives, for those who want to follow Jesus. And we'll find the Bible doing one or more of these things every time we open it. And actually, that comprehensive usefulness of the Bible is underlined really in the final part of verse 17. So all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable or useful that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We could think of complete as mature or filled up or built up. It's, it's a total thing. 
so that those who belong to God in Christ may live for God, reflecting Him in everything they do. If you're a Christian, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have salvation through faith in Jesus, there is nothing irrelevant in the Bible to your life. Either indirectly or directly, God has something God-breathed to say about every aspect of your life. From how to talk to God to how to think and behave around sex and relationships, it's all there. All centered on the gospel of your salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible is an incredibly useful gift. Well, the thing to do with an incredibly useful gift, of course, is not hard to figure out. It's to value it and use it. And as we start to wrap up, I want to share with you three suggestions for how we can value and use the Bible. And no prizes for guessing the first one, of course. It's on the screen. It's read it yourself. Just read the Bible. Reading plans, daily devotionals, study Bibles, and other aids, they're all useful in their own way. But if we believe the Bible is God-breathed, we can expect Him to say something useful to us every time we open it and wherever we open it. There's something called, uh, we sometimes call the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. There's a, a big word you can use to impress people around, around the lunch table today, perspicuity. Basically means that anyone can read the Bible and understand what matters in it. That's a great thing. So if you're a new Christian, don't wait for someone to tell you how to read the Bible, just start reading it. And let God do the talking. Just a suggestion, Mark's Gospel is a great place to start. But just read the Bible and let God speak. Sometimes even those of us who've been Christians for a while need to be reminded that just reading God's Word on its own terms is useful and valuable for us. <clears throat> Excuse me. When I get up in the morning, I usually have a cup of coffee. I have the cup of coffee because I enjoy it and because I expect it to do something. I expect it to give me that kick that I need to get going in the morning. Now, when I make my coffee, I don't usually look on the map to see where the beans come from. I don't measure the force of my temp or time the extraction. I know some of you might do, and that's okay. No judgment here. But in fact, I'm lucky if I'm awake enough to press the button and hold a cup under it at the same time. But the coffee still works, and I still expect it to work. And because the Bible's God-breathed, we can actually trust it to still be effective for us, useful to us, even when we're half awake or confused by a word here and there or pushed for time. Of course, there's value in prayerful and intentional and careful and thoughtful Bible reading. That will repay itself. Perhaps using a plan or working systematically through a book or a section of the Bible, that's very useful. But let's not kid ourselves into believing that I've got to get the, all this stuff right before I can read the Bible and understand it and have God's Word speak to me. My attitude or ability isn't the activating factor in the usefulness of the Bible. God's Spirit is. And so read your Bible in small bites and in big chunks. Do it often. Do it daily if you can. Pray for God to speak to you in and through it. And Ask him to make you complete and expect him to do that. Let him do that. It might not be comfortable. He might turn your world upside down. He might really unsettle you before he finally brings you to a place of peace and assurance and joy in the Lord Jesus. 
but we can trust that the Bible will teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness so we're complete to live for Jesus as we look towards heaven. So number one, read the Bible. Read it for yourself. Secondly, hear it from others. We actually need one another to speak the Bible to us as well. We need to be in, a ch- in church on a Sunday hearing God's word preached. We need to meet with other Christians one-to-one and in small groups where the Bible is the central topic of conversation. Paul reminds Timothy how crucial the ministry of his mother and grandmother were in his coming to know Jesus because they were able to help him understand the Bible. We need to hear those who've walked with Jesus a little bit longer than we have. We need to hear them speaking God's word to us. We need to hear from those who've been Christians for a few weeks or a few months, sharing with us the new and exciting things they're understanding from God's word. We also need to hear from those who have devoted themselves to understanding and living God's word. Now, we live in a particularly blessed time with the Bible teaching of the most faithful and famous gospel ministers from around the world are available to us at the tap of a screen. I just want to draw your attention to the value Paul places on knowing from whom you learned it in verse 14. I think for that reason, we should place a greater priority on hearing the word from those we can actually know those we can, whose lives we can actually see, whose lives we can see being transformed by the God-given word, by the God-breathed word. The gospel actually turns things upside down, so we shouldn't, there shouldn't be any surprise that there's probably more value and reward in hearing uh, what Penelope, age 57, from your Tuesday night small group, learned from reading her Bible that morning than from listening to any big-name evangelical preacher's weekly podcast. However faithful to Scripture they may be, there's still someone that you will probably never meet and will never really know. In Penelope's case, you won't only hear God's word from her, but you'll also see the effect it's having on her life over time as God speaks into her life and completes her. Which brings us to our third point, speak it to others, because we all too can be Penelope's. I don't know why I picked that name. I was just trying to avoid naming anyone here. If you're visiting today, your name's Penelope. Welcome to you. My apologies. Please insert whatever name you'd like. But we can be those who speak God's word in love in whatever amateurish and imperfect way we possibly can to those around us and let them see the effect God's word is having on our lives through, his, through God's God-breathed word to us. So tell a friend what you read in the Bible recently. Ask for help with something you don't understand. Text a verse to a friend who's facing a difficult or challenging situation. Even if it's not the perfect verse, it's still God's word. Last week, many of you noticed that there was a typo in the uh, study guide. And thank you for all those many texts and emails uh, pointing out my brain lapse. But Acts chapter 20 is still a really good passage of scripture in which God speaks. If you're a parent, a grandparent, read the Bible to your kids or grandkids and let them see the way God is working on you and completing you through it. And as we're reminded here again, even children can become acquainted with the Bible. It's able to make them wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. And who wouldn't want that for their kids? Well, that's probably enough for one morning. We can pick up the rest in the Q&A a little bit later at 10 o'clock where we can talk some more about the Bible. But remember this. 
the Bible is special because it is God's God-breathed word about salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's special because it's useful to work in our heads and our hearts and our lives to complete us and equip us for life with Jesus. So at the very least, friends, make sure you're reading your Bible. In many ways, it's the silver bullet solution to the Christian life. A simple, powerful solution to help us grow to be more like Jesus. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for your word, the Bible, which is able to make us wise for salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have breathed out all scripture. We pray that as we read it, that you would teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us in righteousness so that we may be complete and equipped to live for Jesus. And this we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. Alrighty. Welcome to our Q&A this week, guys, on the Bible. Um, a few people are still having morning tea, so we might get a few stragglers rolling in. Um, just a reminder, if you weren't here last week or if you've forgotten, if you want to ask questions online, you can pull out your phone, type in slido.com, and then put in that code you see there. Um, or if you'd like to ask questions off the floor, just raise your hand. I'll bring the mic around to you. Um, and we'll kind of alternate depending on if we've got questions on the floor or online. I might throw it out to the floor first. If anyone has a question, raise your hand. I'll bring it around. Who, who put the Bible as we know it together, and how did that happen? Uh, thanks, Bree. That's a great question. Who put the Bible together uh, in the form that we know now? So, Old Testament, that, that's an easy one. So, that's the, uh, you know, Jewish faith is always held to those being the books of the Old Testament. And so, because I guess we see the, all that stuff being fulfilled in Christ so that we, we have the same Old Testament. Um, there's no specific record from what I understand about how the Old Testament was gathered, but that's always been accepted as what the books of the Old Testament are. The New Testament's a little different because it kind of developed, I guess, as the gospel was going out. Um, so you had the writings of Paul, you had the writings of guys who were writing about Jesus, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, and a few others. So what was accepted was how the writings of people who knew Jesus or who had kind of the apostolic connection, those were always considered to be especially important. Um, Peter actually says in 2 Peter, I think it is, that he actually, he starts talking about Paul's writings as Scripture. So he actually says that, you know, some of the things in Paul's writings are hard to understand, um, which some people twist as they do the other Scriptures, which is kind of cool because that already in the time of the New Testament, people are recognizing some of Paul's writings already as being Scripture. Um, things kind of didn't have a, a definite form until probably the middle of the... 300s, when a church council got together and said, right, there's a whole lot of other, other stuff that's been written, supposedly claimed to be by the apostles and all sorts of other things. So they got together and said, right, what are the ones that are accepted by majority of Christians as being the actual 
books of the New Testament. And so they put them together in a list and they said, right, these are the ones that A, talk about Jesus uh, in a faithful way, faithful to the Old Testament. These are the ones that have apostolic authority, which um, you know, either come from people who knew Jesus or those who they knew um, and I guess were verifiable as well. So I guess it, it was kind of a developed process. So, and it definitely wasn't the council kind of going, right, we're going to decide which books people should read. They were kind of looking at things and going, right, which, which books are people reading and which are accepted as the actual uh, New Testament scriptures? And they said, right, rubber stamp those. Those are the ones we hold to. And that's kind of the very short story of how it all happened. Does that kind of answer the question in a helpful way? Um, maybe on that, if you know off the top of your head, what are some of the kind of um, things we'd apply to a book to work out whether it should be included in the Bible? I see there is actually a question on the screen for Rob. Um, so that, that's yours up there, brother. Safe for you. Uh, how do we establish which ones should be in the Bible? Okay, so I guess the thing to understand is that when this was all happening, um, there were a whole lot of other books being written that were claiming to be like, there's a, a book called The Gospel of Thomas, there's The Gospel of Barnabas, there's some other stuff that's around at the time um, that were being written, claimed to be by the, apost- by the apostles, but weren't actually, they were written in the 200s or the 300s. Um, and so it was... Uh, you know, they, part of the thing that they wanted to do was make sure, A, it was faithful to what the Old Testament was pushing forward to in regards to Jesus as the Messiah. Um, it was also wanting to make sure that the authorship was verifiable, that it was actually the guys who, you know, knew Jesus and that sort of thing, that they were the ones ri- actually writing it. Barnabas couldn't have written a gospel in the second century. He was dead. Um, so they wanted to make sure that those things were, you know, knocked on the head. Um, so... It's faithful to the gospel account of Jesus um, and written usually by people who knew Jesus. So Hebrews, even though we don't know who wrote Hebrews, we can see that it's, it's very, very faithful to what the Old Testament is pushing towards in regards to the Lord Jesus himself. Um, yep. Uh, I think just, just adding, so the third question down there is about how do we respond to people who question the legitimacy of the Bible too, is just remembering that, um, you know, I guess those early... Uh, uh, New Testament times is that, that you know most of that was written while there were still people around who had actually lived through those times and so um, you know they they could attest to the truthfulness of it and the um, uh, you know making sure that it was that it was really spot on to to uh, what they had seen what they had experienced themselves and and I guess heard you know only only first or second hand not fifteen times uh, you know passed down through generations so that's um, quite a, uh, you know, a, a clear indication uh, about the, yeah, the worthiness of it, I guess. Cool. Question on the floor. Hello. My question relates to the third question up there about the legitimacy of the Bible. I was reading the Christian Book of the Year for 2021 this week. Just in the opening pages, it had a quote from the high court or from a court in Britain where a doctor had lost his job because he was standing on the truth of Genesis 127 about God created the male and female and he wouldn't buy into practicing a falsehood that there were other genders. 
So he lost his job and he went to, and he was challenged um, to take it to the High Court because he thought he'll definitely um, win this one. The book, the Christian Book of the Year 2021, quotes the, um, the judge saying that, um, no, you will stay basically out of employment. You've lost your job because Genesis 1.27 is archaic and dangerous. So in our world today, because this is a very big issue, with the authority of God's word um, basically saying, you know, that they're male and female, that man felt he was doing good work by, by standing on God's word in the workplace. Um, governments are encouraging us these days um, and policies in our workplaces um, to practice a falsehood that there are other genders. How do we live out the good work, you know what I mean, of God's truth in that situation, stand on his word? What is your advice? Um, yeah, I think it's a really, really tough one. Um, I think, unfortunately, the case of that doctor, it's a no-win. You know, you just, you know, the, the world's not going to accept the truth of God's word. Uh, so, you know, he did his best, I think, and he's got to trust himself to a, um, you know, his, his creator who judges justly and leave it at that for, for him in any case. I guess, though, when you do deal with people who question the legitimacy of the Bible, you buck up against it. The important thing is to figure out why they're doing that. Um, because we're, you know, we're not interested in winning arguments. We want to win people for Christ. And being able to understand why there's the issue in the first place is probably really important. You know, if, if there's a fear there or if there's something that, you know, they, they, don't, they, they want to find something to reject in God's word, which means that they can reject all of it and be kind of justified in that as well. That's, you know, we've got to kind of get under the skin of that a little bit and figure out what, what's, why, they, why they reject the legitimacy of the Bible. I guess there's also different ways they might do that as well. And so it's not just a blanket thing to just reject it, but ask why. What, what's, what, what issue do you actually have with it? Uh, obviously, I'm talking now about not dealing with a, a court, but dealing with you know, friends, colleagues, others we might meet. And maybe even invite them to read it with you. And you, know, you might find that, or they might find that their objections are, um, are responded to in a helpful way as they actually read it for themselves. Um, I guess that's, that's the best I can offer. Rob, do you... Um, yeah, I guess, you know, if, I guess a personal example is the um, voluntary assisted dying stuff that's coming through uh, Queensland now. It's legislated in Queensland that, um, you know, there's a, uh, provides huge ethical challenges for uh, Christians in the workplace uh, around that. But um, I, I guess in acknowledgement that there are different views on the, uh, the approach to that from a societal perspective and a biblical perspective is that there is, um, you know, that, that legislation uh, actually, you know, provides an out for clinicians who, um, you know, have a, uh, an objection to it. Um, and it's not just on, doesn't need to be based on a Christian faith. It can be uh, on whatever it is that your belief system is that says that, you know, uh, death is not for us to decide, it's for somebody else. You know, obviously for us that's, um, that's God, but... Um, yeah, there's, uh, I guess maybe here in Australia we still have that, those outs uh, are, are still available, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it is an opportunity to have that conversation uh, as, and as Clint said, you know, to point people to the Bible and give them a reason for what 
uh, what you believe or what I believe uh, and, and for the hope that we have, um, uh, you know, in Jesus that, uh, that what makes us different makes the, um, our response different to that, that situation. As tough as that is sometimes. Um, I'm going to go to a question online here, um, which asks, how does the Bible help us work out our salvation without it being in our own strength? I think by, it just points us back to Jesus the whole time. Uh, yeah, a really good question, uh, whoever asked that one. I think the way it does that is by keeping pointing us back to Jesus. So even in the, oh, here we go, even in the, um, oh, it's all good. So by, by telling us to do certain things and certain, I guess, certain practices, even like we're talking about at the moment in the sermon series, like reading the Bible, praying, uh, Lord's Supper, baptism, all these kind of things, it's not doing them in a sense of, you know, here's a law which you've got to follow to please God. It's, it's kicking us always back to Jesus and his work in us. Everything we do is as a response to what God has already done. Um, so that's how, I guess, we, we avoid doing it in our own strength. Of course, we're going to keep trying to do it in our own strength, um, but, you know, the... Uh, where's, where's the passage? Have you, have you got it there? Or... I'll try and flick it up. It's in Philippians. So the, the question references Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, so looking actually at the way that Jesus entrusted himself to God, uh, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to do to will and to work for his good pleasure. So reminding that is, of course, it is, it's God's work in us through Christ which does all those things. We go back to that in prayer. We go back to that saying, God, what do you want me to do? Uh, give me the strength to do the things that you want me to do. Uh, it's, it's that attitude and approach, I guess, to obedience. Add to that, or thanks, whoever asked that one. Um, any other questions on the floor? Um, I suppose it's uh, the question about the um, the doctor in England, um, and he's. I, I'm not aware of it at all, but it it's. Um, a sign of the times, and uh, I, I think the um, the uh, ideologies that are being put forward by people um, of those ilk are, um, are trying to put people into um, like groups um, and. Uh, Jesus is a relational Jesus. He's, he's, it's a one-on-one -on -one thing and it's an individual choice about things. And this, uh, these ideologies always, well, not, not always, there's a big broad brush, but mostly uh, talk about groups. They're trying to identify, um, you know, the, the, the white male uh, or, and then they're trying to make judgments 
on a group of people, which just doesn't work. So every case is individual. And, and I think Christ's individual uh, relationship with everybody is um, a, a lot more meaningful and real uh, than these ideologies try to force upon us. And the... Um, there's always mistakes when you try to group a whole people, heap of people together. And uh, so I would say that uh, a, a way that we can uh, rely on the Bible being uh, the truth is because it's, it, it speaks to each one individually and addresses each one individually. <clears throat> and these ideologies that are being put forth by the world uh, fall short in that in that aspect, um, so it's just a, it's, a, it's a comment on the th- what, not really a question. So, thanks, Brad. I think you, it's it's a good comment, and I think you, you if there was a question in there, I think you answered it as well, which is fine. Um, but I think you know the great thing to point out actually that you know when we read the Bible, we see the way Jesus responds to people. It really reminds us that the gospel or the Bible gives us a better way of. Relating to people, actually, uh, for that very reason, you know, Jesus doesn't play identity politics, Jews, Gentiles, whoever, and you know, you've got that lovely thing, and especially in Luke's gospel, it it keeps saying, um, you know, Jesus saw this man, Jesus saw this woman. It's you know, he sees them as they are. Um, later on in Hebrews, you know, everyone's naked and exposed before him, before him to whom they will give an account. God, we're not lumped in a in a in a group, and actually a wonderful. I guess, uh, you know, point for the gospel there maybe is that, I don't know, I feel a bit um, dehumanized just being lumped together in a group as a kind of white 40-something male. Um, but, you know, the gospel treats me as, as a person on my own terms, in my own merits, and that's, that's actually a really cool thing. So, yeah, uh, good comment. Thanks. Um, I've got a couple of questions here online that have a few likes. Um, I might read two of them, and I'm going to flesh it out a bit. Um, for how you respond to it. Uh, One here says, how should a follower of Jesus reading the Bible for training in righteousness respond when the government permits what God forbids or forbids what God permits? So similar to Brenda's question before. And then another one here that says, given Jesus proactively utilized scripture to speak truth, even though it offended people, um, and Israel Folau was criticized for the same, was Falau right or wrong? Maybe without even answering that last bit, um, I think what both the questions are kind of getting at, I could be wrong here, but we as Christians hold the truth of the Bible. We stand on it. And we live in a world which is offended by Scripture, um, which goes against what Scripture says. So I think what both the questions are getting at is how do we live in that kind of world and how do we interact with those kind of people? Yeah, really, they're really good questions, and, and I think this is going to be one of those things that is going to become more and more of a challenge um, for us uh, over time is, is uh, you know, standing firm. Um, uh, I guess, how do we stand firm? We stand firm with the strength of Jesus, um, and really, we can't do that on our own. Um, uh, and I guess uh, maybe... Um, 
I was going to say choosing your battles, uh, and I think, you know, was Falau right or wrong? He posted a Bible verse, um, you know, that was hugely probably taken out of context, people not understanding the truth of Jesus and what, uh, you know, what his life and death and resurrection means for us as Christians. Um, you know, they're honing in on one word or one, you know, tiny part of a verse and not in the context of what he was actually, um, uh, you know, what he believes, I guess. Um, so, uh, yeah, I had actually had this conversation on Friday night with a, with a friend, um, uh, you know, at dinner who, uh, is not a Christian, I guess, calls himself an atheist agnostic, um, but really, you know, desperate to know lots about lots of things. And, um, you know, it is really that, uh, you know, it's, it's God's word and we can't pick and choose what parts of it we we like and don't like and uh you know parts of it are offensive to to society um and that is uh you know that's it's upside down from what uh thank you upside down from what the world often uh you know is messaging to each other in so many things um and that is uh difficult for people to understand who don't have a faith don't have uh you know that whole of bible uh, big picture understanding, which is um, you know really important to to gather that you you can't just look at a little section and and um, you know and that and people are going to be blind to that. Uh, going to have this fog. You know, this guy I was talking with, he has that fog, and you know, I pray that he uh, that the fog's lifted and and that he can see the truth um, uh, in in what the you know the scriptures teach us about God's will for for us. Um, you know, he, he sees a lot of good in Christianity as well. He sees a lot of, um, you know, what, what Christianity is, has uh, helped society to function well, but just can't take that next leap, yeah. Um, maybe just to add to that, um, for both of those questions, I think reading the book of 1 Peter is a great place to go for answers to those sorts of questions. Um, we've got a sermon series planned on 1 Peter in July, I think it is, July through September. We'll be looking at 1 Peter. Um, but, you know, one of Peter's big points is he writing into Christians who are, you know, struggling under a certain amount of persecution and difficulty and being on the back foot socially and culturally and all the rest of it, um, and saying, you know, basically, we follow someone who received the short end of the government of the day. We shouldn't expect anything better. But... Just like Jesus entrusted himself to God and didn't try and, you know, transform the, the, you know, the legal systems of the day, it's not actually what we're called to either. We're called to win people for Christ. Uh, and so, you know, we, we operate on a kind of completely different playing field. Um, you know, God in time has, does and can, uh, you know, make huge social change. You think of the end of the slave trade. That was through Christians like Wilberforce um, using opportunities that they had uh, prayerfully to bring to an end an awful atrocity. But generally speaking, Christians are always going to be on the receiving end of, you know, the ungodliness of the world. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised, as Peter says, um, of the fiery trials that come upon us. But as he says, we should, uh, those who suffer according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Because ultimately we've got nothing to lose if we're, with, uh, if we're entrusted to Jesus. Um, just wanted to point out one more thing from 1 Peter. I think this is where it is really helpful. Um, have no fear of them, he says, in verse in chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Uh, so he's talking about the powers that be in our world. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, 
yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Okay. Um, this is a great question from online. Um, given that there is such a variance in theological perspectives among Christians, why does the Bible not give more clarity on some controversial positions? Do you want a bit of time to think about that? I don't know. To the, to the question asker, which, which ones in particular are... Um, you, you might not want to put your hand up. That's okay. That, that's the question I'd be asking is which, which ones... <laughs> It's Luke, isn't it? I know. It's fine. Hiding behind your screen there. Um, I'd be asking which theological perspectives, first of all, because different perspectives, and there are, but they might require different answers um, and different, you know, digging in the Bible in different ways to kind of see how we arrived at those different things. So maybe baptism, case in point, that we spoke about last week. Um, I know that, and I'm already having some conversations with people who've got different theological perspectives about baptism, and that's okay. Um, you know, I think what the Bible wants us to do is make sure that the most important thing is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And so stuff that, you know, is around that, I think it, it's helpful sometimes if God wasn't as clear so that we don't kind of um, load up those sorts of things with, you know, a kind of interest that's not due to them. I guess you see the danger of that over history, particularly with something like baptism, where um, thinking about the Roman Catholic Church, um, for a long time believed in regenerative baptism. So you're baptized into the church, therefore you're saved. That was putting a whole lot of weight on, on something like baptism, which isn't warranted because the Bible just doesn't give us enough. What it does give us is a whole lot of weight on those who trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation will be saved. And that's the kind of stuff that really matters. So, Luke, does that kind of answer your question? Good, good. But different perspectives might require different answers. Do you want to... Yeah, you know, I was just really going to say that there's those rib and spine things, which is pr pretty well your answer. Um, you know, and there's things that, you know, verging into the, the spine end of the ribs um, that, uh, you know, probably tend to be a bit more the controversial uh, things that, you know, take a bit more time to debate. But, um, yeah, I think off the back of what Clint was saying, it was really just, um, I guess, don't let it distract too much from what we're here for, which is to, uh, you know, tell others about Jesus. Um, and, uh, you know, agree to disagree on things that are not important and stick to your guns on the things that are the, the spine ones, yeah. Got another question here um, that's helpful to think through. How does the Holy Spirit help us in reading the Bible? I think seeing as the next question's for Rob, I'll, I'll do this one and then you can... Um, listen to what, what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, might have to read a, a little bit here to... I'm going to read the whole of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 because I think it's helpful. Paul says, I, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So he's talking about Christians, though it is not a wisdom of, wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand these things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Uh, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual ju person judges all things, but himself is himself judged to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So how does the Spirit help us to understand the Bible? Well, by communicating God's thoughts to us, the thoughts behind what's there in Scripture. You know, this is why many people can read the Bible, even be academics who study the Bible, got PhDs in biblical studies, but who don't know Jesus. And yet we can sit here, you know, very ordinary people, I think very, none of us probably have PhDs in biblical studies or anything, but we can know Jesus through his word because that's what God does. So this is why it's always important to pray when we come to read the Bible, ask God to do his thing, ask God to speak through his spirit, through the words into our hearts directly and point us to Jesus. Um, he does something, it's, it's, a, it's a miracle that he does that and a great mystery how he does that, but he does. And we see it in our own lives and those, uh, those, uh, those lives of the people around us, I think. Do you want to answer that? Yeah. Cool. I'll go here. Question on the floor. We know that all Scripture is breathed of God. When or what sort of translations cease to do that? Is there any that you would uh, recommend to stay away from? <laughs> Um, especially for younger people today, um, some of the translations. Yeah, I guess the, there's um, there's a spectrum there, isn't there? You know, right from the um, you know the actual word for word sort of translation, uh, which can be difficult, uh, you know, in a spot like kids' church for kids to understand. Um, Simply, they, you know, they, as Clint said, they have the Holy Spirit uh, if they're saved and, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit is to help us to understand God's Word. But the, um, I guess the, there's a, no doubt there's a, there's a point somewhere at the end of that spectrum where it starts to get um, a bit challenging. Um, we actually have a friend, a friend who's been working for about 26 or 7 years in PNG translating the Bible into tribal languages and... Um, uh, you know, one particular tribe, and now he trains uh, translators. And, it's, yeah, it's really interesting, uh, I guess, hearing, uh, you know, the effort that they put into understanding culture of a, you know, a society, I'll say a tribe, but I mean a society, um, and, and making sure that they can get the right uh, language that will, you know, push the right buttons, essentially, for... for um, the people who are hearing it and reading it, that they actually get 
the, the meaning of it. You know, he gave an example of one particular word that they were stuck on for like three days, you know, going backwards and forwards because they're translating in pidgin English and, uh, you know, between the, uh, the different people. But they, you know, they finally got this word right and it was just like this light had been turned on, you know, in the, in the village just getting that one word uh, particularly right. So... Um, yeah, I guess that there's um, there is that spectrum. There's there's people uh, with all sorts of uh, preferences. Um, I think it's really helpful to have uh, you know if you're really meditating on God's word to have you know multiple versions uh, available to you. We in our community group really value you know the people who uh, will either flick their phone up to a different version and pull up you know the the same verse that we might be struggling with uh, and give a different. Uh, slightly different translation, which can help us to have that light turn on, um, and that that's really helpful. I probably, you know, my own Bible reading probably don't do that enough, but it, it's something that, um, yeah, is is really really helpful. Um, I'll pass over to Clint for the ones you definitely shouldn't read. Um, I think it's an interesting question, and I, you know, I don't think there are many that I well, I can't think of any off the top of my head that I'd say stay away from actually. I think one of the reasons for that is that when we talk about the preservation of the Bible, the Bibles that we have, even the modern English translations, are remarkably accurate to the original languages. You know, I, I, badly, but I can read the Bible in its original Hebrew and Greek. And, you know, when you come to look at what we've got in a number of different translations, I think God's been behind that to make sure that over the last 2,000 plus years that what we have, even in English translations, even if ones that try to be quite contemporary, it's remarkably accurate to the thrust of what's actually going on. And those, you know, there are Bibles out there where people have tried to be a bit edgy and try, you know, gender inclusive and whatever, those sorts of things. Um, they don't tend to get that much traction somehow, which I think is part of, you know, maybe God's intention behind that. But if you're looking for a good Bible to read and study, NIV, New International Version, ESV, like we use here, English Standard Version, Christian Standard Bible, Holman Bible, um, New King James Version, King James Version, read it, absolutely. Um, New American Standard Bible, um, you know, the New Living Translation. Even the message, I'm going to say, even read the message. It's not a bad translation. It's just not a full-on Bible translation, if you can understand that. The guy who wrote it, he gets Hebrew and Greek. He knows what he was doing. But um, it wasn't meant to be the kind of Bible that we sit and pour over exact words and sentences and meanings. It's meant to give a thrust of, of things. So read lots of translations, like Rob said, and get a, get a good sense of what's going on in God's Word. Um, that's always helpful. But yeah, none that I'd say, hey, oh, don't, don't read that one. <laughs> Even the Latin Bible. If you can read Latin, go and, go and read that. It's not bad. It's, uh, yeah. um, for the sake of time, maybe we'll go to Graham and then Rob's question online that's been waiting there. Thank you. Uh, just looking at all these questions that have been put up, uh, I think a lot of the answers can be found in the Apostles' Creed. And uh, I find... It's, we seldom say the Apostles' Creed, uh, but Luther kind of sums up part of it and by saying, if I can remember, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the one true Christian faith, and in which Christian churches he daily and richly forgives all sins, and will finally on the last day raise up me and all the dead and give unto to me and all believers in Christ eternal life. And that kind of, in my opinion, listening to what's going on, uh, what the question is today, kind of sums it 
sums it up. Um, we'll do Rob's question. If you didn't have a question answered, sorry about that. Um, these guys will be around for like five minutes maybe or so if you want to quickly ask them one. Um, otherwise, we've got a Q&A next week. Uh, for Rob, how are the chronologies and instructions around the feast and the Old Testament laws profitable for us today? They are... Do you want me to run through all of them or no? The Is this you, Luke? Yeah, thank you. Who else? Um, so I guess the, the key thing, uh, and again, I had this conversation on Friday night with my mate, uh, which was fantastic. The, um, he's actually, yeah, anyway, that's all right. We'll let that one, that one roll. The, I guess what they do, those instructions, the Old Testament laws, uh, is point out that we can never get there. We can never be right uh, through anything that we do ourselves. Um, that we had a need for Jesus that, uh, you know, was undeniable. Um, doesn't mean that they uh, are all, you know, uh, answered, finished, closed. Jesus said, yes, they were. But, um, you know, those things are still helpful for us living our lives in, uh, you know, uh, this day today, which I think is still a, you know, really amazing thing uh, about the Bible is that it's still, there's so many times... Uh, that you are reading through, you know, judges and kings and you see things and you go, how crazy were those people? And then you go, oh, hang on, that's actually me, um, you know, turning my back on God and, and not following what I know uh, he wants me to be living like. Um, so I think they're, uh, they're profitable for us in, in reminding us that, that we need Jesus, essentially. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's really... Um, there's lots of other things you could say, but I'll close at that. Unless Clint, Clint wants to top it up. That's great. Great one. Um, did you want to give your library book a plug briefly? Great. Yes, before we close off, um, if you're looking to get the most from reading the Bible yourself, this book is fantastic. It's called Read This First, A Simple Guide to Getting the Most from the Bible. It's by Gary, who's the principal of Queensland Theological College down in Brizzy. Um, it's a really readable book. It's really well written. It's written for anyone. This is, I think, the only copy we have in the library, and it'll make its way to the shelf immediately after we're finished here. You can grab this at Kurong as well. They've got heaps of copies. But read it. It'll, it'll help you to get the most out of reading the Bible yourself in a really helpful and accessible and understandable way. Highly recommend it. Cool. I'm just going to pray for us as we close. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this time today. Um, reflecting on your word. We thank you for the gift that your word is. We thank you that your word is special. It is God-breathed, um, but it is also useful, Lord. It helps us to, um, yeah, live our lives um, for your glory, and most importantly, it points us to Jesus. So help us, Lord, to be people of the word, to um, dig into it, um, to learn from it, and to live out of it. And we pray all this for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thanks.